Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, motherfucker! What are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. Run that, baby. I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this extremely special one-off episode of the One Heat Minute Productions podcast. I'm, of course, your host, Blake Howard. Um, a couple of years ago, I had an idea to do what I'm calling the Decade Project, which would be a mixture of reappraising and like via essays or interviews or podcasts, films that actually still hang around because in the 400-odd new movies that come every year plus the 500-odd TV shows that one of my guests has to cover some of them and I don't even know how she does it, uh, it's really hard for things to cut through. And for anyone who knows the shows that we do, you know that certain films once they kind of get their hooks in me that's it they're they're mine for life and the people who make them i am ride or die for them 
permanent ticket. If I'm buying a subscription, it's to whatever they're making. And today is ridiculous because as part of the decade project, well, this is obviously 2023. So we're going back to 2013. And one of the films that was released in 2013 is a film that I think in Australia, if I'm really fair, we didn't probably even get it until 2014 or extremely late in 2013 at the time that it actually came around. I saw it and I was staggered by it. I almost couldn't watch it again for some time. It haunted me. It moved me. It was just utterly sensational. So I thought I'd reach out to my friend and friend of One Eight Minute Productions, one Macon Blair, and say, Macon, you know the absolutely stunning, terrific calling card of your career, One Blue Ruin. Would you want to come and have a chat with me about it? And he said why don't we make this a party and I'll invite one Jeremy Solnier along. And I said, well, why don't we make it a bigger party? And I get my favorite person who I've ever read writing about the films of Jeremy Solnier, of Macon Blair, one Roxana Haddadi. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Decade Project. This is Blue Ruin, Roxana Haddadi, Macon Blair, Jeremy Solnier. Hello. 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 <laughs> it's good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. I'm just buzzing right now. Um, Rox, this is pretty cool. We had some fun conversations about the prospect of talking to these lovely gentlemen about this incredible thing. I don't know. Did we have conversations or did I just send you like a string of exclamation point emojis? <laughs> like, I think that was mostly it. But, uh, but yeah, this is tight. Gents, thank you so much for doing this. 10 years between drinks. <laughs> 10 years does it feel like 10 years or does it feel like a goddamn blur a blur for sure yes 100 blur yeah <laughs> so can you take us back i want to talk about everything that you guys can remember everything that this film is because one of the things that i love about it is and there's so many things that i was watching again last night to um just before we got started on it. I've seen this film countless times um, since it was released, but um, watching it again, I'm just struck by everything that you you did, Jeremy, and everything that Macon does and putting him in the frame on the fringes of American society. And I just love this so much. I grew up on a beach town and like the film opens up in these sort of coastal towns. And I just love these views of like being able to hide in, I guess, the... Uh, in the corridors that people don't usually have in society, like metaphorical corridors of society, where you're just navigating these liminal spaces that are between places and people are so interested in themselves that they don't get to see you. And I just love that that focus is such blue ruin. It's just that you're living on the fringes, you're here. And I think that Roxanne has written so beautifully about it. Just this like glacially slow pace lures you into this, I guess, false sense of what this movie is. And then it just hits you with absolutely everything that is a gut punch. When you were making this, Jeremy, when you were thinking about it and conceiving of the idea, like, how did it start? Can we go back there? When we first hopped on this call, I, I mentioned, like, it's it's been a long time since I've spoken to humans, let alone in a sort of public forum. But, you know, the Blue Ruin origin story, uh, you know, I haven't watched it in probably eight years. Wow. Um, because it's so special to me. And when I dig in and I am within centimeters of every frame for so many months and finally 
fix all the audio tweaks we need for the final mix and this and that and release it, I kind of put it to bed forever. But over the years, it's 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 been romanticized in my mind and is now a perfect movie. So I never want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that I'll I'll probably just see all the flaws. But you know, the, the origin of Blue Ruin is it's it is all you said. There is all that intention there. Yes. But primarily it is a pragmatic engineering of how to showcase our collective talents, you know, making myself and all those involved. And while it does explore the fringes, it's really of all the films I've done the most near and dear and close to just my heart. And so while it was a traditional revenge story with this sort of unhoused person on the fringes and on, you know, a, we called him at the time a beach bum blue ruin originated as a comedy premise because Macon's fucking hilarious. <laughs> and this is a film built from our old haunts. Location is as important as plot as far as the origin. And so we both grew up going to the Delaware shore for vacation um, and it's a great place to hang out and, and we both know it from our youth. And so, you know, let's get Megan Blair in a comedy role, playing a beach bum and see what happens. And then as our career is sort of, I wouldn't say stuttered. Yeah. Okay. Stuttered. <laughs> um, these sort of comedy ambitions I had, you know, I think I, I did a lot with murder party, our first film together. Mm. And that was a blessing and a curse. It wasn't intended to be what I want to make for the rest of my career, but it was indeed a calling card. So Blue Ruin was a course correction for both making and myself. Um, but it was really, you know, getting a list of available locations and revisiting these childhood haunts. You know, my childhood home, Macon's family's property called East 100 in Southern Virginia, uh, the Delaware Shore, and building a story from scratch, uh, how to make a movie for as little money as possible. And then it became much more intentional dramatically as it was written and developed. Bacon, can you tell us about that process when you're thinking that, and firstly, an alternate universe of you being the beach bum a la McConaughey, I mean, I'm down for it. I'm just letting you know that we're all down for it. <laughs> And if, if there is a, if there is that in your future, I, hopefully this is me speaking it into existence, but can you talk about going from something funny? Because I certainly know that you're funny and sardonic and clever. So when it was this, like, how, how did you just go? No, I, instead, this is just going to be an open wound. I'm going to be, I'm going to give absolutely all of myself. Cause that's the thing about, I think about your performance that continues to strike me. It's like, even talking to you casually now, like you're usually smiling and happy and this. And when I look at you in that movie, you're just, you're just every emotion that you, but people don't want to touch. They want to be away from it. And you're just all of it encapsulated in a human being. Oh, uh, well, that was very kind of you to say. Um, I was, I was very disappointed in, in Jeremy and I was just disappointed <laughs> in everything. Um, Cause I had my heart set on a comedy. No, I mean, like we kind of started out making these little movies together and they, they were always um, comedies in some way. Maybe it was sort of like a reluctance to like 
be sincere or something. But at, at any rate, they were always funny. And and the first movie we did was funny. Or it was intended to be funny. <laughs> and, um, and then we had another couple of scripts that we were developing um, as a group. And they were similarly, um, you know, they were comedies of, of sort of different genres. And they, they were never able to get made. And then Jeremy said that he was going to write this, this beach movie, which was also going to be a comedy. And the Dwight character was going to like... It was going to open with him stealing a rotisserie chicken out of a <laughs> out of a deli and like eating it while he ran away from the cops and all, like slapstick broad stuff that was very very comfortable for me and I was really like okay we can do this um, and then I, I I remember we were uh, we kept having these meetings and and I remember Jeremy as being kind of like a little cagey where he, he was like yeah it's actually it's not going to be that funny. <laughs> kind of and then it, it kind of went to like actually it's going to be pretty dark and then he was like i'm close to a first draft it's it's pretty much pitch black and um <laughs> and then i read the script and it was like a wonderful script but i was really um daunted by it because my experience with acting up until then was all in movies that were done by friends and and they were all all comedic in nature and this would be something very different so it was um it, it, it was scary also not just the nature of of that role but also the fact that um that character was kind of the only one in you know he's kind of like the whole movie for better or worse and if it doesn't work if i stunk up the joint then the whole movie <laughs> is not gonna work whatever great stuff jeremy did it just and so I, I was very, very nervous and and initially was was quite um like uptight about it. And Jeremy really had to kind of like, I don't know how he did it. It was some sort of <laughs> hypnosis thing, but, but basically <laughs> chill me out, you know, and and tell me to relax and take a deep breath and not overthink it so much. And we were able to get into um a rhythm with it, which which was also, to be clear, happening simultaneously with like, Ah, we out in the woods in Virginia with you know the crew was like eleven or twelve people, tiny little crew just driving around in like two cars and a van, grabbing shots where we could, and um, and it was so much fun, and so um, that was also kind of at odds with a with a very grim, dramatic performance because it was it was kind of like, you know, just like we were kids again in high school running around with a VHS camera you know making movies in our parents backyards when we were kids but it felt like that with professional stakes and the idea that jeremy would default on his mortgage if it didn't work because he had oh invested all his own money in it. so so you know it was pressurized it was also a dream and and i we, we talk about it a lot about um being very very grateful for everything that's happened since then but also wanting to in a perfect world be able to go backwards and and have that be the you know the circumstances again where it's it's just a a bunch of buddies that get to make a movie totally on their own terms uh for better or worse and kind of do whatever they wanted so yeah i i remember it uh very fondly um it's a very a special time for for me in my life I can also add, you know, now that 10 years have gone by, Macon was a huge influence on me as a filmmaker and as a writer, and partially admiration and, and partially fucking frustration. <laughs> but, because we would, 
endeavor to make these movies, yes, indie comedies, kind of in the early aughts vein. Um, and Macon and, and our buddy Chris and, you know, among our collective would write these cool, bigger scripts, you know, 11 million and above. And Macon was a, a, an expert at dark crime. And as we were waiting for our indie comedy to go and it did not, I was sitting there fuming, like, why do these pricks always write scripts that we can't make? They're super good, <laughs> but they go out and they get optioned or whatever, and they get churned through the mill, you know, whatever the industry would, would do to them. And so I was like, influenced by a script making wrote called The Sinners. Um, and he, you know, I, I I really felt, you know, we can do this shit, but these goofballs aren't as production savvy as me because I was a cinematographer and we, we all crewed and PA and, but I was, a, I'd been a gaffer and a, you know, a sandbag conveyor and whatnot and was working as a, as a indie cinematographer. And so really knew the ins and outs of production and how to really engineer a new model to fix what I thought was broken. But the center is making script was influenced as far as like, let's, let's both get out of our comfort zone. I won't, I won't do a zany comedy. Let's go artful. Let's go, as you said, an open wound, you know, very, very emotional and high risk because murder party was done by a team, you know, and I led that team, but it was because I was, we couldn't afford a good looking movie. Our short film in 04 looked better than that. Um, murder party was shot on standard definition. And so we said, let's make it kind of, well, sleazy and goofy. And if they're laughing at us, it's okay. It was cover. It was still fun. And, and now I'm, of course, I'm very fond of the experience. High school friends came together, but Blue Ruin was that course correction. And it was about, let's actually try to do what we want to do. And so um, that was the big thing is, is Macon's writing. It's, it's fantastic and very influential in the creation of this movie. I apologize for the mystery. I don't mean to scare you. You're not in the trouble. I just thought you should be somewhere safe when you found out. With somebody. He's going to be released.
works, man. The one with the gun gets to tell the truth. Oh. <laughs> you two are just adorable. Um, we're just <laughs> we're just eating this up. <clears throat> there's there's something so people would know listening to my stuff, and I know that Rox and I both have this affinity is a long time ago, I was listening to like a comedian and a filmmaker in Australia called Tony Martin talking about his, he's a big cinephile. And he's like, my favorite movies are movies that actually show how things are done from a procedural nature. It's the Manny Faber termite art thing. And that is something that I've really flipped on so much in, especially Blue Ruin and other parts of your work is you really fixate on all of the details especially because life is such a messy and this is such a quagmire. The minute that Dwight gets into this, it's just like, everything is messy. Everything is clumsy, but I just love your attention to detail. Jeremy, both of you guys have this visual sense of like, I'm going to show you every single element of all these weird procedures in his life, whether it's the garbage bag for his battery or whether it's, you know, the keys around his neck and what he keeps for certain things and going into his sister's house, even in the conclusion of the film of fixing the broken window and putting the keys back through the, the, the slot, like those little things. I wonder if, if there's, if that was a, an intentional thing, because I feel like this is such a, this is such a challenge, like an elemental kind of like throwdown to me of like, when you make this genre, so much of this stuff is glossed over when in fact the messy humanity of all of these little fastidious things that the characters do is actually how you get to the core of that open wound. And I was just wondering if that was a conscious, and I'm sure there was a huge amount of intentionality, but I just want to sort of break down some of that choice because I loved it watching it last night. I'm just like, I love all these little peccadillos that Dwight has and that Macon has in this performance. I'm just like, I love it. I love it. Can For I share sure. mine? Where's oh, my yeah. hand to ask each? Oh, oh, sorry. All, all I was going to say is that my favorite is after you stab Wade, you personally make it. <laughs> um, and, like, and you pick up the knife, which is great. But then we also see him turn the faucet off and like leave bloody yes. fingerprints. Yes. So there are all these tiny moments of like, for a character, unintentional process, just like the muscle memory things that we do as human beings. And then, yes, the very intentional, like, I'm going to Ben, destroy physical evidence of my presence, wipe the phone, all of that stuff. So, yeah, I, I echo Blake. I would love to know how that stuff was, like, scripted and thought of and all that jazz. I, I'll let Jeremy speak to how it was thought of, but to, I, I just wanted to jump in with the, it's It was definitely intentional because even in the previous movies that we were developing, Jeremy, um, was really uh interested in and it, it seems to have always been interested in um process and and it was never really articulated this way but looking back on it i kind of realized that i think it, it was sort of like it correct me if i'm wrong jeremy but the you know the, the process or procedure can equal character and like um i i would tend to get fixated on on dialogue or, or other things Jeremy's very interested in in physical process as a way to show character and so you mentioned the turning off the um the water he, he comes back later in the movie and does the exact same yeah, thing because he had mm -hmm. to flee and and he left it on but he is not one to leave a mess 
or or leave something out of order when when it should have been taken care of, whether it's turning off the water at a murder scene or sweeping up the glass because villains have like home invaded, you know, like whatever the things are, which are completely outrageous. And like what? But I I, I love it because it um it says something very specific in particular about this character without him ever needing to say, I don't ever leave a mess, you know, <laughs> you see him do it and you, and you kind of either know it on a conscious level or not, but you know it. Um, and I'm, I'm very fond of that. There's a commentary track just waiting to happen where you just do all the really trite kind of like, um, genre things in there. I never leave. Just make you do it. I never leave a mess. Yes. Whatever. I would. I would buy that if that would like a steel kit. If that were like a steel book 4K. Are you kidding me? I'm in. Yeah. All right, Jeremy. Tell us all the details. No, it's true. It's um, it's how my brain works, and also, again, this is a sort of a reaction to other movies, and in the in the early aughts, you know, into the 2010s indie film was people in a room talking and that's what you're told to do and murder party is that i was told that's what you do and i've shot movies like over the course of a weekend and it's people in a house talking and it's fucking hard it is the the lighting and time of day continuity to make two or three script days happen over you know 18 shoot days over three weeks it's, it's very difficult um so one of the missions of this movie was silent storytelling, mm. purely visual when I could. And then when there's dialogue, we go all in. We just sit there, we park the camera, we choose one lens and we let the actors just do it all. I don't do shit. I just sit back and observe. But uh, along the way, when we were getting notes back from allies in the industry, um, you people just have these normal reactions. Could you start with a flashback of Dwight's parents getting killed? And it's just kindly no. And then I'm not going to read the rest <laughs> of your comments because that's a normalization of what we do. And if we were trying to compete with revenge sagas, we would lose. So what do we do? It's the simple premise of like, okay, what would I do? For real though, not like what what do I wish I would do and how I would come across, but knowing me, knowing Megan, knowing humans around me, um, how would we actually behave and falter and triumph, if you can call it that, or succeed? Um, and what are the consequences? And so that was just really, I would say just wrote itself, but as you went through, you realize like, man, you know, this hasn't really been done like this before um, with a, a very inept protagonist just thrust into this very traditional arc. And then I think that's what adds to the tension is his attention to detail. He's polite. When he makes a mess at his sister's house, uh, he cleans it up. He comes back at great risk <laughs> to <laughs> right his wrongs. And immediately after the act feels regret and has to sort of sit the bulk of the movie stewing in that and uh, the physicality and the nuance of of what one might do was again engineered for cost reasons for me not wanting to hear myself or others talk too much 
and challenge ourselves to tell a story visually and create character with action and gesture and not so much on the nose dialogue. That all, all of that though was not clear to me when Jeremy, as I was saying earlier, was, was indicating that he was pivoting away from a comedy version and was, <laughs> and was like, we're going to do a more straightforward revenge tale. And so all of that was, um, uh, I, I wasn't aware of it yet. And so I was very much imagining Taken. And I really thought that he was off base because I thought he was saying like, he was suggesting that this was going to be a tough guy protagonist who is, is kicking ass and, and very sure-footed. And, and, and I just felt like that was, no one was going to buy that with me. Like you, you're going to have to cast somebody else in this role. If he's going to be a, you know, a two-fisted, um, brawler but then he assured me that it'll be the opposite of that and then i said oh okay well then that's different we can do that so but i feel like what works really well with that is sort of the duality of like it seems almost depressingly easy physically to kill someone but it also feels like the emotional toll of that is just so inverse, so outsized. So like, I love the balance of the performance in that way. There's sort of this, at least for me, very uncomfortable ease with like, it just takes two stabs to end someone's life. But then as Jeremy said, it's like, you're sitting in that, like, what else could I have done? What's the guilt of this throughout the film? So it's like, of course, it was probably never going to be taken, (laughs) but I just love what it actually ended up being because of that contrast. And, and I, I do believe to this day that this film would never have gotten made, gone through the proper pipeline. Yes. Because of those notes. And because in the end, you know, to your point, Blake, this movie is the cutting room floor of any other action movie. Yes. It's the um, difference between the mechanic with Charles Bronson and the mechanic with Jason Statham. Right. <laughs> some, so, some of some so you watch the Bronson and it's like a meticulous, slow 22 minute opening where you're watching someone walk around an apartment. And the whole point of and the phrase, the mechanic is so that like he he's gone in there to orchestrate a death scene that he can never be traced or tracked for. And even the police are mystified, even if they suspect that it may be someone who's orchestrated it. And then Jason Statham's like exploding cars and head kicking people. And you're like, this is not the same. Just don't call it the same thing. Call it anything else. But I also love the, I love the signposts and I love the, the people that, Dwight encounters. And one of my favorite Ben Gaffney played by Devin Rattray is just so the best like i just love him i smile i know that this movie is not meant to be a comedy but just like the line last night that got me is i just had to wait for him to point the gun at you so i was fine like so i was okay to shoot him in the face and i was just like this is just the the weird morality of death and you've got the i guess the very realistic reality or i guess a a much more relatable reality for me of like oh my god like Dwight's coping with the fact that he's having to point a gun at someone and he's just killed someone with a knife and maybe he's done the wrong thing and now this is all crushing him. And then his mate's like, no, I'm good. I, 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 that was a good kill. You know, he pointed the gun at you. I killed him. I just love that balance because when they clash together, it's electric. Well, that's that's procedure too. That was like yes. Ben's procedure of like, I can get into my sniper position, but I will not shoot until X, Y, and Z happens. And then I can. And yes. You know, it's he. He has a a procedure that he goes through as much as uh, 
I guess anybody else does, which is. Yeah. I actually interview my friends for movies and the character Ben is based on my buddy, Ben. He's part of our posse from, from back in grade school and beyond making movies. And he is a gentle person. He's not a combat veteran, but he likes guns. <laughs> and, and I modeled this character after that. And I, 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 I asked Ben, like, how do you feel about revenge in this scenario? And he's like, I, I'm totally against it. Um, and I was like, shit, okay. So Dwight's not going to get a cheerleader. And I, I like that. He's like, you know, he's kind of neutral and it's waiting for, for Teddy to point the gun is also a liability issue. Yes. It's like, I want to help Dwight, but I'm not going to go down for this dude right now. Um, so I, I incorporate, I even asked my buddy what his gun collection was and that, you know, there's whatever we could get from our armor mimics that collection. Yeah. Cause that's the reality is I really not that creative. I just know who to talk to. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll yeah. just let, we're just no, gonna literally that. no one is going to buy that, but okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, we're not buying this. Okay. Okay. I put a lot of research into my films. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's better. That's, that's better. Fine. Megan, I want to know. So like making this transition from like the intended comedy to the drama, was there like a backstory that you created for Dwight in those years that he's been missing? Did you do any of that like mental sort of gymnastic stuff or were you able just to get into the character and then like follow up? Was there a scene that was like the most difficult for you? Oh yeah. Um, Jeremy and I talked a lot about like what, what, what he had been doing. And like a lot of that was born out of like me asking questions of Jeremy, like why the battery in the bag? Like, well, because mm -hmm. of this and, and like what all of these very particular details about Dwight's campsite or his, um, his vehicle that he kind of lives in or, uh, you know, just any of the things that he does to survive kind of asking about that and, and, Jeremy tended to have um, very clear ideas about what that was going to be. And if, uh, and if he didn't, then we would kind of talk about it and come up with something, but I wouldn't say it was like a whole history that had been memorized. It was definitely more of, of kind of like taking it on a scene by scene basis and trying to make sure that I was doing justice to what, to what he wanted. Part of that was sort of knowing what came before, but I would say more of it was, was trying to, you know be more present for for the that moment that we were in which uh to your second question um i i think the one that i remember being the most difficult but also the most um kind of exciting and thrilling was uh the very long conversation with his sister in mm -hmm. the diner mm -hmm. um because uh, there was, I, I just had this remarkable uh, scene partner to work with, Amy Hargreaves, and um, it was a, a ton of dialogue, and um, and there wasn't a lot of uh, business to to rely on. It's not like he's he's walking around and you could do stuff to kind of like you really just had to sit still and and look at this other person and and have it feel authentic which which was daunting for me like i said you've got someone like amy sitting across from you that makes it easier but as we started 
getting into that scene um that's when it became um thrilling because it was just so fun to play off of amy prior to that um very nervous didn't sleep very well the night before and and was like of all the times to really tank jeremy's movie this is going to be the one (laughs) (laughs) and and to add a little something to that that was the day we lost our sound mixer oh that's right the producer was doubling as the boom up yeah the, the producer was was on this the uh the the audio recorder didn't realize that what he was turning up was the monitor and was not turning up the signal so the audio levels were so low and it was by far the most it was the core of the movie it was the heart of the characters and (laughs) the single most important dialogue scene in the movie and of course uh we barely got through it but yeah that's what i was referring to when it was just the filmmaking sort of stopped and I just let the actors go. Cause honestly, not only was it really important dramatically and narratively, it saves a shit ton of money. Yeah. It's a 12 page scene mm-hmm. and all these descriptive passages of, you know, Dwight does this, Dwight does that. He goes here, touches that. That's a quarter page and ends up being X amount of minutes. But this was like, I wrote it 12 pages. We we um, shaved it down to about, I think, a seven or eight minute scene. And it's just I that the that method has influenced me on every movie where I can implement it um, is to, when I have important dialogue. I don't like a lot of coverage anymore. I like the philosophy of you pick a lens that's appropriate. And you just do a couple, three, four, five takes, and that's that's all you get. Because then you're not forced to find the best performance in the close-up, which is hard. It's a little jarring going from medium, close, wide, wide, medium, close. When you just pick two lenses and employment actors, you know, it 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 lets it be so present. And it's hard to find that in sort of you know studio filmmaking for sure. Um, but yeah, that was that was a, a crazy day. We'll be right back after this quick break. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I, I think from the, the standpoint of like the, the little shots taking more time and, and the big scenes being more efficient, I, it, I could be wrong. I might be misremembering this, Jeremy, but I think the the scene that we had to do the most takes on was just a close-up shot on Dwight turning off a lamp. And it was really just his hand coming in towards the end. <laughs> and, and there was something about like, you know, it was like an insert shot. And so there, there was sort of like a, a technical, like the hand had to come in in a certain way, but it, it, it you know, it was something that we had, we had to do like a dozen takes or something to turn off the lamp because like the- Hey man, that shit made the UK trailer. And it's worth twice as many takes. I'm just saying compared to- <laughs> Yeah, I'm getting, I got shit on this, this last movie I did. It was technically very tough, but I was doing like 13, 14 takes because um, there was so many moving parts, but um, Blue Ruin, the rule was like, if we get two good ones, we're just moving on. Yeah. Because all I want in the edit room is a choice. And mm-hmm. if I get two good ones, then I'm a lucky dude. So moving on. Yeah. I, But I do love that. That's. Do you want this shot to go in the UK trailer? I love that you could use that <laughs> in future film sets. We're going to do it fucking 14 times. The UK market, love this shit. Um, fantastic um there's a line that last night i wrote down and i may i may have i may have balls it up but i feel like um i feel like it's like an evocation of the whole genre you know people sometimes you know i know that tarantino calls these things revenge dramatics or revenge you know stories or whatever but i just love it so much and i wanted to talk to you about it because devin rattray ben gaffney gets it you point the gun, you shoot the gun. And when I hear that line, I'm like, that's the, I don't know. That's the kind of like the exegesis of this whole movie. It's like, he's making the choice. He has to do it. You point the gun, you shoot the gun. And it's the wearing of the consequences of that. And I wrote down in my notes, I was like, these motherfuckers are just throwing these lines away. Like these lines that just go like in the, in the <laughs> as the biggest compliment as I can give you ever is that some of the lines in this movie hit me like a Mack truck and then you just drive over me again because you've got another one coming f- to follow it up. But that line particularly got me on the last few and you point the gun, you shoot the gun. And I feel like that the burden of that line 
you know, uh, he, he might be saying it, Ben's just saying it in that passing moment. You point the gun, you shoot the gun, you can't mess this up. And it feels like then that line informs Dwight for the rest of the movie. And there's that great quandary scene where he comes out and he points the gun at the family. And then he makes the choice. Okay. I, I might just get out of here. I might do it. I might, this, this might just be too much. And he hides back behind the wall and then they start reacting to his voicemail. And then he just comes back out from behind the wall and he points the gun. You point the gun, you shoot the gun. And I was just like, that's, I don't know. I, I, these little lines last night got me again better and bigger i think than I've, they ever have before why the fuck was that line not in the uk trailer <laughs> should have been like the poster line that was yeah. um i i will add another another line which is my favorite in the movie um and despite you know really i am i am proud of the script i had a great time writing it and it was a collaborative process, but I got to sit in a chair and really interpret things and process things. But and make it, I think you might have you might have added it at the script phase, but Which it was say that I did. <laughs> uh, either that or on the day, but I remember in that same sequence with uh, Dwight's childhood friend Ben when when Teddy is felled, it's this moment you know, that also speaks to the film and the overarching themes is once it's too late and Teddy's face comes apart, Dwight just says, wait, and it's too late. It's already happened, but it's that confusion and that just injection of, of humanity and regret. And I was like, Bravo, Megan. Your one <laughs> word is kind of equal to the the other, you know, four hundred in the script. But that, um, that sound mix, and I think the weight falls between sound of gun shooting and bullet hitting. It's like this perfect bridge of like you hear in the like in the mix in the left speaker, and you're like, whoa, what is that? Wait, bang, and he's just down, and you're like, oh, that's that's this character. Yes, and that edit, like that that edit, I worked very hard on because that's like frame accurate to confusion and interrupting the flow of the narrative, and like maybe a line was going to come or something, and it's just this awkward like, wait, what's happening? Boom, it's over. <laughs> wait, and oh fuck, I didn't want that, you know, because I think Dwight was seeing, he was he was, things were revealed to him and. I think Dwight was sinking and saying, this is pretty much it for me. This is my state is my fate is sealed and I kind of want to go. Yeah. And then intervention occurs and he's like, fuck, wait, no, now not I'm, you. Me. Oh, never mind. On with the movie. <laughs> now I'm in so deep. Now I'm in so deep. I can't, there's no getting out. See, I should have had that line in there. <laughs> no, that's in the make, that's in the making special features that we're going to get on the full cat. <laughs> No, I'm right. in so deep. <laughs> no they kidding. all have to be. They all have to be in like this Batman voice. Like that's really <laughs> the key. Yeah, a little bit out this. of breath. Yeah, too many cigarettes. I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm almost shocked. I'm almost shocked, and I know it's coming to the 4K release, but I just know that Macon's going to start spouting lines from Vincent Hanna and Neil Macaulay in the diner in Heat during he and Amy's scene in the diner. He's just going to start. You know, I got this recurring. I got this recurring <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, oh, hey, this is a sidebar. Are you going to do uh, an insider uh, podcast? Oh, God. Uh, yes. Say yes. He's asking you. You can't say no. <laughs> Thanks for peer pressure 101. Um, have Megan Blair say, yeah, look, uh, I thought, Megan, perhaps uh, in a flawed manner that because I really wanted to do the journalism podcast, I didn't want to follow up one heat minute with the insider. So I went to all the president's men because it's a perfect movie and one of my favorite movies, but what is nagging at me. And I genuinely say this, everyone knows in the world that I love heat, but on its day, when I watch the insider, when I'm watching the insider, it's my favorite Michael Mann movie. And that's you the trouble with it. With, with, with the trouble. It's just, it's, it's so good. It's the one that you're watching at the moment. I get it. You should call it how and why Gand. Look at this this art that's coming from this. This is so special. This is so special. Um, Come on, Megan. This is a prestige indie we're talking about here. That's. (laughs) Can we we go back to that, though? Because, like, Megan, do you remember? Was it your ad lib? Like, how did that go? It was not an ad lib for sure. No, I mean, it may, I I think, I I honestly don't remember. I think Jeremy was saying that it may have been pitched in a, in like Like a a script discussion. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't remember, but yeah, no, that was definitely not um, uh, ad libbed, but you know what, that, that day was the second, I mean, of the two times in the movie where people just talk for 12 pages, Mm -hmm. that was the other total monster. And it was, um, that one, for some reason, I don't know why, but it didn't scare me as much as the diner scene. But it was uh, that that was a big one to get through, just because it it was sort of like that was the closest to that Liam Neeson version of the movie that I was that I was scared of. It was sort of like he was still fumbling and 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 a mess. But of all the times in the movie, maybe except for the the very, very end, the confrontation, that was the time where he had one up on a bad guy and was kind of like, tell me the truth and, and trying to extract information and stuff like that. And so trying to be credible with that. Um, but again, it, 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 there was a, you know, uh, Kevin Kolak, who who played Teddy in that scene, it's just sort of if you have somebody who's really remarkable on the other side of it, it really does a lot of the heavy lifting for you not the memorization which is difficult for me but just sort of being um uh hopefully credible in in those moments if you just have someone like kevin sitting in the truck uh trunk kind of glaring at you then it's kind of easy to feel intimidated even if you have a weapon and um and it's implicit jeremy does such a phenomenal job of framing you as the powerless one in the entire scene no matter what, it's like you're, you're, you're holding a gun and the way the camera's got the way that you're framed in the scene, it's like, you're always feeling like you're, you're tilting and you're less powerful than Teddy is from the trunk. And I think that that's what, it's just like another choice in that scene where you're like, this is not, he's not going to, you know, self-actualize into this like murderous rage filled, like, you know, uh, typical, very typical and almost like frustratingly typical uh, revenge genre person who suddenly gains all these skills and gets all of this sort of rage. It's, it's still that delicate balance in that scene um, of the power dynamic is, is really excellent. Yeah. The, the, the power dynamic and also the, the, the fear of it, which, which yeah. again, Jeremy used procedure to kind of bring, he, he, he doesn't just like pop the trunk and is like, all right, tell me some shit. It's very much like, okay, 
I have to provide water for this guy. It's my obligation <laughs> as a human being. I also have to like make sure that the trunk can be opened with the button, but I don't want to be close to him because he could like all this kind of preparation just to have the the conversation, which otherwise could have just been like, let's talk to the bad guy. But it was it was almost like the conversation itself was secondary to him stage managing how to best have the conversation with some water, with some distance, with the like, I'll press the button and then do a very wide run around circle to make sure he can't get me because I'm scared. Um, all, all, all those little things, which, I, I, you know, in if it were a different situation, the note probably would have been like, just open the trunk and start talking. But th those little physical details um, are important to Jeremy and they become like, that's that's what the weight of the whole scene is kind of hinging on. You know, it's, it's not yeah, it's, the conversation, it's, it's the space. Yeah, and, and logistics. And the funny thing is, you know, we're here on Zoom and making you just touch your face, um, which <laughs> brings back a crucial memory. So again, we're low budget movie. We shot the first third or 25% of the movie uh, in continuity because of the beard. It gets sh shaved off after the murder and he's fleeing and trying to conceal his identity to some extent, but um, also trying to clean up for his sister. That's, that's the, that was the real motivation. It wasn't like, you know, I'm going to dye my hair. It's more like, I'm going to see her. It's been a long time. I better look a little more clean cut. Um, his kindness coming through. But when when he wasn't so kind and was stabbing um, his victim in the bathroom, it was, again, governed by practicality. I was doing mostly, uh, you know, camera tripod, camera slider, dolly, traditional camera support methods. But because the, the bathroom stall was uh, so confined, it was handheld and the environment, it wasn't a set, it was a, a real sort of roadhouse bathroom. And so we were in there and I was sitting there with the camera and just watching, making and going through it. And it was good. And then, you know, but but it was such a a huge moan in the movie. You know, I'm not the most articulate. I, I don't really know how to speak to actors that well. I don't know the craft and the sort of shorthand but I do know plot physicality and just sort of like what the bullet points of this story are to, to help the actor translate that. And on one take in particular, Macon touched his face and it did something and it completely, I was like, this is perfect. Do that again. And we did one more take and that was it. But it was like the, the, the scene where Dwight is trying to process these emotions and ends up leaping out of this bathroom stall and, and killing Wade. So, um, but that was present sort of throughout these things. And, and that scene with the Teddy Dwight standoff also came down to physicality. And I remember when we kind of got it, you know, Macon and I had not done this before. We have, you know, I had helmed a feature, but it was shot in two parts over, you know, eight months. And it was just sort of this hodgepodge thing. But we were out here with a real schedule and a real crew and people looking at us. And we were trying to find out how to unlock these scenes. And I think one of those takes was about breath. And it really helped Macon and it helped the camera all of a sudden felt very confident and in love with what it was seeing. And again, didn't need a ton of coverage. Um, and that was really fun to see come alive. And it's, it's these simple little moves like breathe a little heavier before we start and let that resonate throughout the scene. And then you got it. And it added to that, to that fear and tension. And I'm big on like, you know, 
close miking actors because mm-hmm. breath is so important when you're not relying upon so many words. I love that. I love that when he covers his breath, like just that in the bathroom stall, he covers his mouth so that he, his breath can't be heard. And then his, his hand sort of dra- drapes away. It's, oh, mm-hmm. it's very special. Very special. And that was it. You know, it's like you visualize some person just standing there thinking and seething. But then when the face, yeah, it, it interacted, you know, uh, his hand interacted with his face and just it, it it said so much. And I couldn't articulate and still can't. But I knew it when I saw it. And, you know. <laughs> Later on, it's when he covers the flashlight in yes. the house. Oh, God. I love covering the flashlight in the house. Because at that point, it feels like as much as possible, Dwight has sort of mastered the fact that like, I'm in this now, like I'm on a path I can't turn back from all the like emotional stuff we've talked about, but just the practicality of they can't see the flashlight light. So it's like, I love the covering the flashlight, but all those sort of things, like how this character remains self-contained is so interesting. Uh, And the scene I think about a lot is like the failed arrow extraction. (laughs) (laughs) Because I love that it fails, right? It's like you have to draw a line for what this character can and cannot pull off. So I love the fact that it almost seems like in another life, uh, or even in the years we haven't seen, Dwight has taken care of like various injuries and done various things, but like an embedded arrow is a bridge too far <laughs> for him to take care of. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, it, it's, it's got all the makings. It's got all the ingredients of the, you know, the phenomenal 2007, no country for old men kind of like, mm-hmm. it's got all those makings. And then when he just like puts the pliers in and goes, Oh, and nothing happens. And then you see him, the cut so effortless. It's just him in the hospital. I'm just like, this is, this is great. Like, because you, you imagine that you're Anton Chigurh, but you're not Anton Chigurh. Like you can't exactly. just DIY surgery out of things. Well, and more to the point, it's like the audience has seen no country for old men and they've seen yes. a million movies mm-hmm. where the, the self-surgery hero healing himself works and so it was like i i i thought that was you know the movie i think does its own thing but that was one of those moments where it it sort of like relies upon i i i think it gets it gets a bigger laugh because people think they know what's coming because they've seen versions of it before in yes in in other movies and so it's kind of like oh he's gonna pull it out and it's gonna suck and he's gonna get bandaged but he'll be okay and then to kind of like do the the opposite version of that um my memory is that that always got um by far the biggest laugh in the movie because it is it it it, it's such a it starts out as such a familiar thing and then and then becomes unfamiliar before i forget real quick i because jeremy had mentioned the the beard which became a whole scheduling thing unto itself like locations with the beard and without the beard and actors being present when the beard was present or not um, but, uh, I, you know, I had grown this long beard, um, when we were trying to cast people, nobody knew who we were. So we switched my IMDB photo for a photo with the beard on. So when people would be like, who's this? Like, oh, he's the, he already is like this sort of like dirt bag. It's, it's very easy. To but, um, almost none of the crew we had worked with before. And so we met them for the first time when I was big and shaggy. And so for the first like two weeks of the of the shoot was was us working together and me look, looking like that we shot everything up till that point and we were in a hotel in in charlottesville and the next night was the beginning of the block of shooting without the beard and so just 
in my hotel room with Jeremy and the um the hair person we we did a haircut and a shave and, and then the next morning I was like in the hotel and like standing next to the crew and just kind of next to them and I was kind of like oh we're gonna go shoot today and from their perspective they were they were kind of nervous about like who is this fucking dude that's standing <laughs> and like it took them a good um it took them a good while to realize that uh who I was which I thought was funny that's great it's like you only recognize the dwarves in the Hobbit movies or stuff like that when they when they have the full beard and the luscious hair if they don't have it you're just a guy oh yeah exactly you oh. just yeah. Megan, can I ask you a question? Sure. How how did you decide upon Dwight's line deliveries? Because they're so interesting and they're so sort of like gentle and like hesitant, but also with increasing conviction. I'm wondering how you got there. Um, I remember it's such a good question that I I, I wish I had a better, more thought out answer for it. I I, I think what I remember sort of locking in on and I think there was kind of like what Jeremy was saying we kind of experimented with different things and and if they didn't work then um, we would kind of cast them aside but I think one of them was the idea that him talking at all regardless of what he's said whether it's to his sister or to Ben like whoever like just talking in general was difficult for him and so it's sort of like him having to gear up and and get the words out that always took a little like preheating the oven in order to get the words out and um and I think a lot of that it it that was either when it was finally edited was either highlighted or if those preheating pauses were interminable then they were cut out but um that that was sort of a a thought process and I remember with (laughs) shooting some scenes with Devin where he would be on you know it'd be my coverage and he'd be on the other side and I would be doing this protracted thing and he'd be like like literally like fucking hurry it up man and i was kind of like i don't know i'm just doing what i thought was right um, I, I remember you know we didn't have much time to prepare but we had uh, a a rehearsal with megan and amy and it the dialogue can easily be interpreted as a certain way. And, and Amy came off the very first time we read it, you know, rightfully so a little angry. Mm-hmm. And then I, I know what I said, because again, I don't say much. I said, let's shift this energy. So it's a little more surreal, mm-hmm. you know, and they did it once and they both took it down and it became very emotional and effective and sad and truthful. And so I was like, okay, we're done. Cause I really <laughs> don't want to talk anymore about this until we shoot it. Um, and that was cool with seeing the chemistry sort of develop right then and there and feeling that we I had something in, in our pocket as far as whatever the fate of this movie was. That was fucking awesome. If we can get that and, and a few other things and we start these, these waypoints in the movie that are successful, then maybe the the rest that strings it all together, you know, might just work out. Well, it's so funny that we talked about that scene because I sometimes think of like, how the hell am I going to exit out of a conversation that I'm having so much fun with? And I'm going to say, 
that for folks who didn't hear when Jeremy came into this call before we even started recording, he said, I haven't spoken to human beings. You know, I haven't <laughs> been around. And it's so funny that Rox is talking about that line and Macon's delivery as Dwight going, I haven't talked in a long time. This is why I'm doing these <laughs> interminable pauses. So it's funny how the osmosis comes back around to exactly how I want to conclude this conversation, which is that for a man who said that he doesn't talk to human beings, Jeremy, this has been an absolute treat. Macon, always a pleasure. Rox, thank you for being here with me um, to do this. And for all of you um, and anyone listening, this movie is a stone cold masterpiece. I love it. For whatever, uh, for whatever restrictions that you guys had as far as like timing and money, I just want to say that it is blown away by the emotional reality of what you deliver. And as a person who loves this kind of genre, I just think that it cuts so deep and so hard and it continues to cut deep and hard. And from Roxana and I, we love your work, both of you, and we love this movie immensely. And I can speak for Rock saying that she's maybe the most gigantic fan of Green Room in the world. So we're going to have to put that on the decade project for when we get to the decade anniversary of that. But it's just been an absolute treat talking to you guys and celebrating this movie because it it lasts. And in this world, the things that last actually have the currency and the rest of it's just trash. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. And despite your awesome outro, let me fuck that up a little bit <laughs> and say, Blake, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. Um, I'm an instant fan already. And Roxana, when you wrote that piece on my work, it I broke down in tears. Oh, oh, okay. I, I have not, you know, we get we, we, a little off the radar recently, but this is why I make movies is so smarter people can speak about them and write about them and interpret them as they will. And when I read what you wrote, it made me feel like a success. And that is a rare thing because I'm a self-deprecator as is Macon. So thank you for that. Uh, as the queen of self-deprecation, I almost <laughs> want to like refuse this. Uh, but that sounded like you were bragging just then. I know. That's uh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that means a lot. I mean, I think that it might be sort of strange to say that I find uh, comfort in how your films sort of normalize extreme reactions, but I do. I find it very comforting. Uh, and I thought about wearing one of my like four green room t-shirts to this, but I was like, that's too much. <laughs> you know, don't don't do that. But yeah, it's an honor and I appreciate speaking to you both very much. So thank you for that. You bet. If you do right, a show I'm... on Green Room, you should call it Green Zoom. Green Zoom. See? Done. Look at this. Sold. Look at this content. Look I don't, the... Where else would we get this? What was the name of the Insider <laughs> Show? What was the name? What was the Wygan name you had? What was it? How and Wygan. How and Wygan. Yeah. Oh, Perfect. <laughs> Oh Perfect. my God. This is the yeah. best. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.